good. Like to ask for your attention, some clarifications on practice of kaya nupasana. As suggested last night, we use this concept of kaya as a, an orientation to help us disentangle some of the complexity and the speed and the, the, the many dimensions that occur whenever we turn to our experience. So body is the anchor point and it is that we attend to body in particular ways. Um, obviously we have lots of concept about bodies, our bodies and other people's bodies, what bodies are like and how they should be like, how they should look like, how they should feel like, how they should perform. and. Um, the consensus seems to be that uh, mostly we feel deficient you know, in the functions of this body or in the looks of this body or in how this body feels. And in some way, <clears throat> this perceiving bodily experience under the perspective of a perception is already slightly misleading, it is already clouding our experience in quite dramatic ways. So one of the first steps is to try to free our experience of body from the perceptual grid work in which we usually approach <coughs> somatic bodily experience. Meditation traditions have found different ways of doing this. Um, one of the most effective ways I have found doing this, and I believe stands on very firm grounding as far as Buddhist meditation teaching is concerned, is that we acknowledge the sense channel in which we experience. We have, if you think of sati as basically a relationship. Sati establishes relationship. That's something I... I have come to be quite convinced over the years of the many interpretations I've played around with what mindfulness actually is, or how one does it, or what it consists, what function it has, how it feels like, what it's supposed to be doing, all this kind of stuff. One of the simplest way I have come to think of this is sati establishes a relational um, quality. Yeah. And uh, I construe relationship in my head. You know, relationship is a construct. Uh, it can be something construed along the lines of seeing. You know, it can be construed along the lines of feeling, of tasting, of touching, of uh, smelling. So um, I can think a relationship. So this is not just a mere question of switching from channel four, where usually my attention gets stuck, 
somewhere in a discursive process, in a story about me or about the world or about you. It is not just a matter of switching back from channel four to channel one, but it is also a matter from recalibrating attention. So a type, an attention that is used to deal with thoughts is instinctively looking for things that are small, that are fast moving, that are chiseled, that say what they mean, and that are ramified and associate and have a slightly volatile, sometimes explosive quality, expo explosively fanning out into many directions. That thought, isn't it? So if you're having an attention that is geared to cope with this, as you have after many years of schooling, after many years of living on channel four, basically, you're not just have learned this is the important channel, you've also learned this is how I negotiate the things happening there. They're fast, there's many of them, I need to make choices, and they're connected, and they're declarative, and they're edgy. So if you suddenly are switching to channel one, that's good. Yeah, good. But still, there's the there's the anticipation of if anything happens there, it's going to be fast, it's going to be very declarative, it's going to be ramified, it's going to say what it means, and it's contoured. And you will just hover there in channel one, and you will not find much, yeah, because the things, even though you're looking in the right place, you're not actually in the right gauge, yeah, the mesh of your attention is not appropriate to what you're actually going to feel in the body. Most body sensations, save a few dramatic ones, they generally be not fast. They're not very chiseled. You know. Rarely you get a really nicely chiseled knee pain or so. Yeah. Usually you have some kind of a diffuse, warm, meandering sort of thing that pulls from one shoulder through across your chest into somewhere into the pit of your stomach or you get big ones, things that are diffuse, amorphous, that are not very conduit. Worse, they don't tell you what they mean. You know, while well, my thoughts are quite happy to tell me immediately, you know, <laughs> what it is about, what I should do, what yeah? You know. What is the meaning of a little warmth in my belly? Okay, feels pleasant, center. But it, what is its meaning? You know, what do I do with it? Yeah. It doesn't meet me on that level. Yeah. So often when we have shifted channel, we're still having solved the problem because we're basically looking for things that are different than the things we meet. It may be well be. The, I keep hearing meditators. You know, I just don't feel anything. Then we speak five minutes, and it's pl it's plainly obvious that they feel a lot. It's just it somehow doesn't count, yeah. So what I feel doesn't really count because the stuff that counts has to be clear, fast, sharp, declarative, nameable, yeah. And my the warmth in my belly doesn't really count because it's not clear. It doesn't say what it means. It doesn't associate with other things. It doesn't appeal in some straight way. So I need to meet it differently. That's important to understand. Yeah? Habituation in our attention 
happens like it happens um, like socially. Yeah? You walk slower here. If you run to the bus, you walk. You don't do that sort of thing here in the forest refuge. Everybody walks in a sort of stately manner through that hallway there. Safe when you feel completely unobserved, you know, you may... But we have, we have found appropriate, an appropriateness yeah, in the pace we move. We have found appropriateness in differing relationships in our lives. We have found an appropriate how we relate to thought. And we cannot relate in the same way to bodily sensation. Otherwise, we just miss them. Or we feel that they're not producing what we need to actually for us to land there, to land our attention there. So generally we need to slow down. Generally we need to widen the focus. Generally we need to wait. Often it is necessary that we create that relationship along the lines of a different analogy. So if my relationship building is built along the lines of seeing, yeah, a certain type of relationship happens. If I build the relationship to my experience along the lines of listening, something very different happens. Yeah. So seeing, for example, um, our most developed sense, we've really made much of this, 95% of our experience come in on visual level. Since human beings have their eyes moving gradually sideways in front, that's what babies still do. You bother to look at embryology, you see the baby's eyes moving actually to the front of the face. And because they are close to each other, the amount of visual field overlap is huge with humans. You know, that means that the depth vision is very precise. And a snake still has to move her head to gauge the distance accurately before it can bite you properly. Yeah. Human beings, because our eyes are having a vision that is overlapping, we have much field vision, much depth vision, very precise. That's what we're really good at. Fascinating, by the way, how the brain construes space. Yeah, very fascinating has various tricks. Uh, it doesn't tell you when it switches from one mode to the other mode. It's fascinating stuff. Just uh, uh, We're not going there right now. <laughs> <coughs> so, uh, because of f vision is a huge thing for our species, uh, that sense is quite dominant in our experience and we construe much of what we do in visual terms. And our relationship to ourselves, our sati, often is also construed in visual terms. When we do visual sati, then it means we observe. It, we, gain, we gain insight. We see things in a distance. We move back and get perspective. Yeah? These are all visual metaphors. Now, when our relationship is visual to our own experience, we move away. Yeah? The simple consequence of a, a visual relationship is distance. We inflict distance. We create distance. Sometimes this is desirable and sometimes this is a disadvantage. If we're doing this habitually, it's definitely a disadvantage. So, much of meditation language, if you listen 
to meditation teachers, then you will find that we use a lot of visual metaphor. And that uh, suggests to us that if we pay attention to something, we, we go away from it. We observe it. Yeah? We go into a sort of a satellite witnessing position. And for some things that is really good. Overwhelming things. Fear and anger and pain. It's very good to be able to do that distancing thing. For many things it's not good. If you want to investigate something, if you want to feel something, if you want to contact something, meet something, this going away business is not good. Particularly if it's habitual. You're going to habitually turn into a witness of your own experience, which is not really something that takes you into a fullness of being. Or it, it's not very empowering. It's not very compassionate. If you're perpetually in a sort of periscope mode, witnessing your own experience, you're always a, a, at a distance from yourself. You know? You're not very embodied. So one of the tasks body awareness Kayanupasana body practice does. There's many things in there, but one of them, and the first, that one which is really needed first, is we need to make sure that we're here and capable of relating to our somatic experience on a felt level. Not on an observing level, not on a distancing level, not on a somehow satellite orbiting level. There's this body there sitting on the mat which I kind of orbit, you know, but actually st- descending down into the organism. Learning to meet the somatic part of my experience quasi from the inside. For me, the key term is inhabiting. You know? It's one of the, the embarrassing things about Western philosophy that it has had to say so little about body in its existence. I mean, it's embarrassing if you look at how much um, output Western philosophy has produced in uh, its substantial history, going back to at least the days of the Buddha, if you take the pre-Socratics. You know, we have very little, actually, incisive to say about body. Much of this tradition is cursed with a split going right through the middle between uh, things of the mind and things of the things that are considered matter yeah. extensible things and uh, it is a powerful message from buddhist psychology that this is actually not the case you don't have that split in buddhist psychology between mind and body save a few misunderstood attempts to get Nama Rupa part, which I deem to be a misunderstanding. Um, Buddhist psychology is not cursed with that split between mind and matter. Uh, it is always understood that the smallest unit of any experience is threefold. There's a mental component, there's a bodily component, and there's a consciousness component. And um, this tripartite nature of any event in our experience means that we, if we encounter the body as a felt, tonal, sensed dimension in our experience, 
we're going to have in the whole package. You know, we're not just going to be losing the mind by attending to the body. So how to do that? One simple way is to consider what you habitually do when you relate to something. How do you relate it? Where do you position yourself? Are you on top of things or behind or moving out? Or So if we meet body, we, we do the opposite movement. We go in. So our attentional move is going in. We are being with. We are inhabiting, yeah? we're kind of gently acknowledging what is there and then we try to draw closer. We're not just fixating, we're actually trying to go and sit beside it. Well, that's a nice little metaphor. Imagine you're going to sit beside something you feel on a bench, polite. Yeah? You don't kind of go in, dissolve it, fix it, feel it out, and name it and you know, melt it down or whatever martial uh, uh, patterns you may have ambitions for you, you're kind of going to sit beside it on a bench in the park and you just go find out how it feels if I sit a little closer to that sensation in the body, to that feeling in the body. And then, you know, as it is, sometimes you may you may start to speak, you know, you may pick something up about this person sitting beside you on the bench. So you may pick up, if you sit with yourself, you may pick up gentle tones. So rather than looking for clear and crisp contours, you, you begin to attune into a tonal quality. Long before we have discursive memories in our brains, we have tonal memories. Our bodies consisting of so much liquid uh, hold tonal echoes from the time before our brains could hold cognitive thought. Yeah. So tonality is a powerful way in which we can get in touch with something. What is the tone of my breathing? What is the tone of my muscles? What is the tone of my energetic disposition? What is the tone of this being with you guys in here? Is there a tone in this body to this experience. So it's necessary that you ask a few questions. Anything in you that says, I know what I'm doing, don't disturb me, I'm just here to do my stuff. Be wary of that. Yeah. The truth is, we, we all don't really know. Yeah. You probably have your gold standards for meditators or so. I have my gold standards, you know. In terms of awakening, it's uh, it's the Buddha. You know? In terms of psychotherapy, it's probably Freud. In terms of nannyhood, it's probably Mary Poppins. Yeah, we all have our gold standards. <laughs> so, um, let us investigate our own gold standard for meditation a little bit. So that this becomes part of your practice. Who am I trying to be here? Who am I trying to emulate or, or mimic? Or who am I trying to be? You know? How does it feel? If I actually meet this, what is here, how does it feel? Come back to these three questions, but on a feeling level. How does it feel? 
what's happening now? Can I be in conscious relationship with it? Visit your body, not just parts of your body, but start with the um, what I call object awareness, which is an attention that focuses more easily on specifics in your body, generally sensations. Usually a reasonably concrete sensation is an inviting way our attention can land on. And once it has landed, you're trying to widen the space. To widen the space of your attention around the sensation, so that the space of your attention is bigger than the sensation. Now some of, do, some of you will, will do that habitually. Yeah? Meditators generally fall into two camps. Uh, sorry, this is very cross and cliched. There's the one camp who wants not to focus, who just wants to have open, wide awareness. And anything, any task, any, any object in there that I should attend to, I just don't want. I just want wide, open, spacious awareness. Don't tell me anything else. Yeah. And the other camp wants clean objects and hang on to those. Yeah. Don't give me this wide open space. It just makes me confused and agoraphobic. You know, I just I want a clean object and I want to hang on with my attention on a hook in, sink my teeth in and stay there. And that's what makes me feel safe. Yeah, that's the other camp. And generally these two camps uh, they don't mix. The sink my teeth in camp doesn't hear any suggestion to open, widen, become more spacious, acknowledge the, the field dimension of experience, uh, because it's just confusing and uh, it lacks the contours I have become familiar with. And the other camp, the wide open spacious awareness camp, does in instinctively recoil from the thought that they actually might have a task or attention could be, would benefit, applied specifically. And they would lose something, freedom or choice or, or just uh, the nice uh, dreamy quality of having a complete openness there. Or the, uh, the possibility that I ha might have to do some work is so unpleasant and actually focus on a detail or establish a consistent uh, stability of my focus uh, is so appalling that they just say, I don't want to do this. You know, this makes me feel good, so leave me what makes me feel good. Both camps agree on one thing, namely, let me do what makes me feel good and don't disturb me in that. You know. Uh, the truth is both camps are right. Yeah? We need both types of attentional focus. There is a place for focus of object focus, specific, bundled, clear, com um, capacity to stay with something and not be thrown off. There is a definite place for that. And there is a place for wide open spacious awareness, the capacity to hold a field rather than just objects in the field. Both are, I believe, indispensable aspects of meditation practice. It's just so the case that one of these things tends to be closer to me or seems to feel more real to me, more valid than the other. 
In practice, it probably means that we need to develop a reasonably reliable object focus first before we can make much of a big spacious awareness. Unless we have established clarity of object focus, it is unlikely that our spacious awareness is of a stability that it is truly transformative. So consider what type you're in. Yeah, maybe you recognize yourself, maybe you're um, still in denial. <laughs> maybe, maybe you've moved beyond this, who knows? Yeah. Who am I to say? So it's good to acknowledge the attitude you bring. It's good to look at the type of metaphor you're using to create a, li- a relationship to your own experience. If you can, switch from visual relationship to felt relationship, getting in touch with things. Yeah? Use, so let me feel this out, or let me go and inhabit, or let me see whether I can approach this a little more, or can I touch this ever so gently. Sometimes the listening channel is very useful. Can I deepen into listening? Yeah. I'm a very different person when I'm in a listening relationship than when I'm in an observing relationship or in a touching relationship. There are profound implications of that. Just acknowledge how it is for you. Acknowledge that maybe how it is for you is not the only possible way, how it could be, even for you. And see whether you can inhabit more of your body, just gently moving through your body, breathing, Acknowledging tone, acknowledging weight, acknowledging extension, acknowledging volume, acknowledging the vertical dimension of your posture. Just moving through the body. Often this is a very powerful way of strengthening your sati, strengthening your mindfulness by moving it, gently moving it. Don't go for precision. Go for rhythm and go for the field. Yeah? So we're stabilizing a quality of embodied awareness that is mobile. The stability will have time for this. Good. Enough of me this morning. Let us practice.
good. Uh, walking practice. We'll meet back in here at uh, 10.30. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.